We've been looking through the the book of Genesis and tying our sermons to New Testament use of the Old Testament, uh, of the the, the portions of Genesis that we've been reading. And we come to to, uh, chapter 28, 29, and really uh, the the New Testament doesn't use uh, these next 20 chapters in the same way, not quoting those 20 chapters, making allusions to them and and, and applying them in some cases. So we'll continue to look at that. But this story in chapter 29 is worth slowing down here today and just looking at the story and what it means uh, for our life. Not tying it directly to a particular New Testament passage, but but looking at how it's it's understood from a New New Testament perspective from the perspective that, that I preach from every week. And it's worth just making a couple of notes about uh, or comments about the approach to preaching that, uh, that I take, that, uh, that our tradition takes, sometimes um, called expository preaching, which means that we look at the text and we preach from the text and, and derive our, our, um, our teaching from the text. But then also related to that is that it's a redemptive historical preaching, or uh, related even to that is a Christ-centered kind of preaching. By that, we mean that we look back over God's story of redemption told in the Bible, the history of redemption, and we, we understand it to all point to the person and the work of Jesus Christ that gives us a full picture of who he is and what he did. Gospel writers say, John says, if, if you know, we wrote down everything that Jesus did, all the books in the world can't contain it. And the Bible is a long book because there's so much that Jesus has done for us that every portion of Scripture helps us understand a little bit more of that. And this passage is one of the best places, examples in the Old Testament, where we can, we can look and see how it uh, applies to our lives through this redemptive historical lens, this Christ-centered lens, and we get a very different reading than what probably many of us have read before into this story. The story, of course, of Jacob uh, traveling on the run, meets Rachel, uh, the, the daughter of, of Laban, uh, who's, his, who's Jacob's mother's brother, and he's, he's, Jacob is going to find a wife, meets Rachel, falls in love with Rachel. Laban makes him work for seven years, uh, then tricks him into marrying Leah, Leah first. Forgive me, I'm a Star Wars generation person. I still say Leah all the time. Leah is the correct pronunciation. Mar- tricks him into marrying Leah, marries, marries Rachel. And, and, and the application that most people come to in this is that, that Jacob got what he deserved. What goes around comes around. He deceived his own brother. Now he's the deceived one. Justice is served. But if we look at, at, this, at this story through this redemptive historical lens, we understand and see something much richer in this whole story in understanding who Christ is and in the story pointing to Christ and God's, uh, God's salvation is redemptive uh, work throughout history. So with that brief introduction, let's, let's read this extended passage. It's the whole chapter 29, printed in the, the bulletins as well. This is God's word. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. 
As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? And they said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. He said to them, Is it well with him? They said, It is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day, and it is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we will water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was, his, he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than, to, than I should give her away to another man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love that he had for her. And then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this that you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to 
his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban for another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. Let me break there and say the name Reuben means to see, or God sees. Verse 33, She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard me that I am hated, he has given me this son also, and she called his name Simeon, which means to hear. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. Levi means to be attached. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. This is God's word. Will you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, will you open our eyes to see, our hearts to believe, our ears to hear, our minds to believe that we are affectionately seen, heard, attached, and loved. And may praise come out of our mouths this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. This is an ancient story. All kinds of things in this story make us want to just push it further and further away from us. To say we have nothing to do with this type of polygamous marriage or marrying a wife's sister nonetheless. The type of deception that goes on in the story. And yet at the same time, we read this story and we can identify with a person, Jacob, in his longing to be with Rachel. We can identify with a person, Leah, feeling unloved and left out and, and scrambling to make something of her life, looking for love in all the wrong places. We can identify with the experiences of being deceived or experiencing some type of retribution for something we've done that was wrong that corresponds so closely with the actual thing. I started to title this sermon something along the lines of a deception that fits the crime. That's just one of the points of the sermon, and the three points that I'll follow along as we go through this sermon are to look just at the story itself, and, and that's, that's the second point of it. The first one is really looking at Jacob and, and his admirable pursuit, and the second one looking at an all-too-fitting deception, and the third one, the third point being the surprising response of faith that comes from the person of Leah, who seems to be just an extra in this story. 
Let me say a word of introduction just on the stories themselves. We've said throughout this that when we come to Genesis, if we look at Genesis as a book of heroes or instructions on what to do instead of what happened, and then the rest of the Bible explaining why it happened and why it matters, we come to a very different conclusion from the book. Jewish scholars have wrestled with this passage in a number of ways in how it's to be interpreted uh, most significantly when you come to the verse where Jacob says to Laban in 21, give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. That language is completely foreign to most of the Bible in its forwardness, its abruptness, and even to Jacob's character so far in this whole narrative. The philosopher, uh, Professor uh, Alistair McIntyre, wrote a book, After Virtue, looking at uh, the philosophy of our day. And he talks about how ancient stories are stories that oftentimes are told around characters who are to be uh, emulated. Their virtues are to be emulated. But he speaks of the Bible being a completely different type of story. And it's filled, instead of with characters that are to be emulated... It's filled with broken, fallen, messed up characters whose constant need is to be reconciled with a God who is not broken, who is the true hero of the story. That's why when you go to the book of Hebrews, which we've looked at a number of times throughout the sermon series because it connects so closely with Genesis, you go to chapter 11 and you have this hall not of heroes, looking back to the Old Testament, but this hall of Faith. People who exercised faith, yet in oftentimes very broken and imperfect ways. When we come to this story, if we can get past some of that searching, find, wanting to find a hero in this story, and we let God be the hero, the story can open up to us to teach us something far greater. Nowhere in this story is polygamy commended. Nowhere in this story is any one of these four characters said, declared to be the righteous one. And yet out of this story flows the nation of God's people that is called Jacob and renamed Israel, called one who grabs by the heels and cheats, Jacob, and renamed Israel, the people of God. And out of Leah come these four sons and then two more. So let's, let's look at this point by point. First point, an admirable pursuit. Jacob has left his homeland. He's on the run. His brother Esau wants to kill him. His father Isaac is supporting Esau, most likely, in this endeavor. His mother Rebekah wants him to marry not somebody of the tribes there that God has said, don't marry anybody from this group, for their evil continues to rise, but their evil hasn't yet reached a level of, complete, um, of completion. Esau marries two Canaanites and then also uh, marries another uh, granddaughter of Abraham. And then um, 
And then Jacob has to run for, for his life after cheating his, his brother and, uh, and getting this, this birthright. Jacob, interestingly, is on the run, but he's also following his mother's instructions. Go find a wife with people from, from this, this other people. And in another interesting twist, he's following God's direction in this. Because God was the one who told them, don't marry with the people in the land. Your, your, your faith, your allegiance will be mixed and, and it will lead you astray. So Rebecca is giving good direction, but she's also been part of the crime, the original crime. It's just a mixed up story. Jacob, Jacob also seems to have some sense of remorse, perhaps after meeting with God for the first time as he's by himself without a possession and lying on the ground, sleeping in the dirt, and God comes and meets with him and shows him this stairway to heaven that we looked at last, last week. Jacob enters in and follows the pattern that, uh, that, that his own father's, uh, father's uh, servant or, or Abraham's servant had set for him. That, remember, the Abraham sent his servant to find a wife for Isaac. And, and where do they go? They, they go to a well. He goes to a well and finds, uh, finds Rebekah at this well. But this time, Jacob's all by himself. There's no caravan, no camels or anything else. He's all by himself. And he goes to the well and he has this cordial introduction. Then he sees Rachel and he's smitten. And there's nothing to condemn his smittenness. He is in love at first sight. She is beautiful, and the text affirms this later. It says, Leah was of weak eyes, but Rachel had a good figure and a beautiful appearance. That's what it says, flat out. It's, it's very clear, it, and, and though weak eyes can be interpreted as poor sight, in, contra in comparing how, how Rachel is described, it probably means that Leah was not all that attractive, fairly homely. There's nothing to condemn Jacob for seeing Rachel and being attracted to her, for going to Laban and asking for her hand in marriage. In fact, he seems to demonstrate a genuine love for her, and not only that, but a dedication and offering to work for, for Laban for seven years, which, by the way, is far more than the typical bride price of the time. Now, the issue of bride price, set aside that for a second, because that was a cultural norm, not, a, not condemned, uh, nor certainly not affirmed here in the text, but just something that existed in the culture. The typical bride price would be something like one-fifth to one-tenth of that seven years. And so Jacob says to Laban, look, I'm going to show you my commitment for this, your daughter, by working for you for free for seven years. He has a little show of bravado and moving the stone that takes many people off to move the well. It was there to protect the well from, from people who would just come in and steal the water at night on their own. And so they put this stone on top of it that required multiple people to move. And Jacob, with an adrenaline rush, moves it by himself. Rachel's impressed. So far, so good. Jacob works for Laban for the seven years. Perhaps at a time of impatience, perhaps just eager to be with a woman that he's wanted to marry for seven years. He comes and he utters 
these confounding lines that I mentioned before in verse 21. Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. Many have speculated why Leah would be able to go in and disguise herself as Rachel and get away with it and suggest that maybe, uh, maybe Jacob didn't really spend much time with Rachel, didn't know her very well. I don't think there's anything in the text to, suspect, to, 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 to uh, suggest that. And the communities here are still relatively small, less than a few hundred people. Not, we're not talking about thousands of people. We can't condemn or, read, or affirm Jacob's approach to this whole thing. We just read from this his eagerness. And we read from this as well an authenticity in the text. Because when we come to these parts of the text that are so shocking, so surprising, it forces us to realize that if a scribe were to come and want to smooth this out and make it sound more culturally relevant or relative, appropriate, it would have smoothed out this line. And what happens next is begins to get at the heart of the issue of the passage. This all-too-fitting deception. I want to point out four things here. The first one is that the deception is fitting for the crime. A biblical commentator, a beautiful pastor known for his uh, brevity, his, his pithy kind of comments, Derek Kidner, he says, the reader can reflect that presumably uh, Jacob is not the only person to have needed a Laban in his life. Jacob deceived Esau and his father Isaac to get the birthright and the blessing, or excuse me, at least to get the blessing. He connived his way to get the birthright as well. Now he finds himself in this position of being uh, the deceived on the other, other side of this. A.W. Pink says it's poetic justice. And yet in this deception, in this deception, we see a, a tit for a tat, an eye for an eye. We see a, a, a deception that's fitting for the crime. And, and from this, we can also see the way that God works throughout history to bring, um, to bring justice to people who have no one to bring justice to them. When the nation of Israel rejects God and pursues other gods and there's no judge or no king to, to bring discipline on the, the nation, who does God use to bring discipline but another nation? Nation of Babylon and other nations in a smaller way. Babylon was in no way a righteous nation. Laban was in no way a righteous judge in this case. <laughs> And yet in God's sovereignty, he uses this person, Laban, deceptive, scheming, just like Jacob, to do something for Jacob. And this is the important point, to do something for Jacob. And that is to, 
remove the blindness of his own eyes. To show Jacob his own faults. God's discipline comes to us oftentimes in this way to open up our eyes to see the ways that we harm others. It's a theme that's repeated throughout the scriptures. That in seeing our own sin, then we are moved to a place of confession, of repentance, of of restoration. First point, the deception is fitting for the crime. The second point is, God uses this type of correction all through scripture to uncover our sin. The third point really gets at the story of Leah. Leah herself, it's not clear how Leah was involved in the whole thing. But Leah, in Leah, we find Jacob waking up in the morning and finding the person that he didn't intend to marry and going to, uh, going to his father-in-law, uh, Laban. And in this, Kidner says, here is a miniature of all of life. In the morning, so often in life, it is Leah. That so often in life, when we, uh, when, we, when we do things right, Jacob pursuing Rachel, doing all these things, when we, when we do things that are, are commendable, we find ourselves in places of disappointment. It's no slam on Leah here for Jacob to wake up and say, I intended to marry Rachel. And yet, in this place, we find Leah representing this great disappointment for Jacob. What's the purpose of this? Tim Keller preaches a brilliant sermon on this, far better than what I can preach here today, called The Girl Nobody Wanted, where he talks about Leah and he compares her to, um, to the places of, of life that, that we enter into and that we, 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 just don't, uh, we just don't understand why they don't satisfy us. But he takes it a step further and he helps us to understand how oftentimes we, we take things in life that are good, marriage, whatever else, We elevate them to this high level, and, and in that high level, we create this form of idolatry, of good things. And in those idols, we're always disappointed. This extreme of an example with Leah represents the miniatures of life, but not so miniature areas of life, where we... We, we, we come to a place in our life and we are just utterly disappointed with what's come of our work, our relationships, our family life, our, our place in life, our activities, our physical fitness. It says, in the morning, so often it is Leah. A miniature of all of life. 
you know, can you identify, can you relate to some of those things? The fourth point on this, and this is an important point, is the point that I made at the beginning, but that I need to go into a little bit more detail. It's the point that the Bible is not this book of heroes. The Bible is, is, is not a, a place of people who are to be emulated at all times. We ask questions of J- Laban, is Laban justified in his deception to teach Jacob a lesson? Is, is polygamy permitted in this? We have to go to the rest of scripture to understand what, what's going on in this story. Telling us the what and not the why. And I want to take just a second to speak to the issue of polygamy because it's been brought up. The question's been asked to me in different places. And there's, there's just three quick points that, that we'll make and not dwell on this too much. The first thing is this, that, that polygamy is never commended or commanded in the Bible. In Genesis 2, God sets out, first point, Genesis 2, God sets out a principle for marriage that is one man and one woman. The practice of polygamy emerges almost immediately later in Genesis, but this is really the first time that it's told of any detail, and then it continues in through the monarchy, especially the, the divine monarchy, until the New Testament, of course, specifies that at least those who want to be leaders in the church who are called to be leaders should be a a one woman man a a one man woman Uh, that principle of one man and and one woman is is reiterated the second point it's it's never commended much less commanded in scripture um, even as a means of social provision for a woman who's without provision so Oftentimes you see examples like David and, and, uh, um, uh, and others who take on multiple wives because their, their former husband died and it seems to be a, a, a way of providing for their needs when they would be destitute outcast. Ruth um, with Boaz, though not a polygamous kind of relationship, is, is the example, another example of that, of, of taking on and caring for a woman in distress. But I think most compelling of all is this, this third point of the cases we have more insight into, like Jacob and like David and like Solomon, who all had multiple wives, for very different reasons, but consistently across none are commendable examples. None are examples of a healthy marriage, anywhere close to a healthy marriage. In all cases, Jacob, the sisters are at odds with one another. In, with David, the wives are jealous of, of one another. With, with Solomon, the wives lead him off. He marries foreign wives in, in alliance-building kind of marriages, and, and they, they, they pull his allegiance away from God and, and to these, these other marriages. And even though, you, you know, you hear David considered a righteous man and Solomon a man of wisdom beyond most others, Never in the scripture is their polygamous practice commended. And so it seems, though it's not explained thoroughly, that God chose not to correct this practice for whatever reason in this time of place, but allowed it. But he wasn't commanding it or commending it. All too fitting of a deception, and yet from this deception, we should not try to find too many uh, moralistic lessons. Even with what goes around, comes around. Because God will bring justice. Our sin can't stay hidden. 
And yet, his justice is so often accompanied by mercy, as it is here with Jacob. His justice is so often patient and with an extension of an offer of redemption. And yet his correction is helpful and appropriate and applies to so many places in life. Do you see how this all too fitting of deception for, for, late, for, for Jacob helps us to see how good the discipline of the Lord is and how we can be freed from trying to find a hero in this story. The closest thing we can come to a hero in this story is really found in the person of Leah, of course. This is the third point, a response of faith, a surprising response of faith from an unexpected place. I think Jacob, you can see in here, is continuing to mature. He pursued, he did things well for those seven years. He eventually got his wife, by the way, probably didn't have to wait another seven years. If you read the text carefully, he had to wait a week, which was sort of that bridal period. And then he got his second wife, Rachel, and then he worked after receiving both these wives for those seven years. And, and in these seven years there with, with, uh, with Laban, in Laban's presence, and then he, he leaves Laban. But, but, but in these seven years, as, as, uh, as Rachel can't have children and as Leah is having all of this children, we see this crack in the overall uh, system where Leah, the unloved and, and lonely, becomes the one who is loved ultimately by God. Now I will praise the Lord, her first, first child. Jacob loved Rachel, neglected Leah. Now she's the one who praises the Lord and finds her satisfaction in the Lord. And in this, Leah turns a mirror to ourselves and, and, and asks us this question. What are the things that if only this would happen, then I would know I'm loved in your life? If only this would happen, then I would know that I mean something in life. For Leah, it was having children. If only I could have children. She wasn't able to conceive right away either, the text tells us. Rachel wasn't able to conceive far longer than Leah, but she wasn't able to conceive. And, and in that time and place, of course, to have children meant everything. It was a de devastation to not be able to have children. Again, something that is not commendable today. Many people are not able to have children. It's not a mark that God loves you less or loves you more to be able to have children. But in that time and place, it was such a temptation for people to measure themselves on that basis. Like in our time and place, it's a temptation to measure ourselves on our, our, job, uh, our job performance, on, on the number of friends we have in real life, on the number of friends we have in social media, and, uh, on, on all kinds of things, our athletic prowess, our, our abilities in life, our, our, our ability even to be good for God. Leah turns the mirror to us so that we can say, what are the things, if only this would happen, then I would know that thing. And Leah, Leah helps us see how real and how human that struggle is. How honest it is. She's a hero, but it takes her years to figure it out as she bears the first three children and comes to the fourth and then even has stumbles along the way after that. 
Leah presses us into our true faith and, and asks the questions, what is your faith really based on? And she comes to this ultimate place where she says, my faith is based not on a husband who loves me, but on a God who loves me. Now I will praise the Lord. I've been looking for my husband to see me, to hear me, to show affection to me, to be attached to me, names the children. By the way, those names carry out through Israel's history as a reminder. This was a bad morning for me. I came up here, I set up the stand, it was the, the thing slid out. This chip in this stand came this morning. It's a reminder for me every time I come up here to preach for the next few weeks of how God is faithful when we fail. And how he calls us to believe this. And how he, he uses Leah both as a Christ figure and as a Christ follower. Now what do I mean by a Christ figure? Well, hold your places in your Bible there and turn over to Isaiah chapter 53, verse 2. Speaking of the suffering servant that would come, Isaiah is promising the people of Israel this redemption. And he says to describe this servant, which is describing the coming Messiah, he says, he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Don't you see that Leah is the same description? Nothing to look on and say, she is beautiful. Nothing to behold and say, we esteem it. And yet, out of Leah come the tribes of Levi and Judah. We'll look at that more as we go forward. Levi is the uh, tribe of priests, which the book of Hebrews describes as such an important function in the life of Israel and that Jesus is our high priest. And Judah, of course, is the tribe of kings, of which David comes out of. And David himself, when he's chosen, though he's described as a mighty warrior in many places, how is he described when he's chosen and anointed to be king? He was the smallest of all of his brothers. And the scriptures tell us nothing, no appearance that would say this is the one who's supposed to be king. And yet out of a person like Leah comes these two sons and eventually comes the Christ himself. Leah is a Christ figure who points us to the one who is unloved and cast aside and who becomes the example of the stone the builders rejected becomes the cornerstone. When you feel like the stone that the builders have rejected, when you feel like the outcast, that you have no beauty, that people would look upon you, Jesus knows what it feels like to have that happen. Left by himself, even alienated from his father, alone, in every way, rejected by even his friends, and yet he saves you. 
And that's where Leah is, the Christ follower, is after these attempts to get her husband to love her, she turns to the Lord and she says, Jesus, not knowing, it's of course an anachronistic reference to call her a Christ follower, but she says, God, I will praise you, for you are my Lord and my provider and my protector. We don't know if God spoke to Laban or how she even knew about God. Probably Jacob told her about meeting with God. And she becomes this God follower, this Christ follower. So out of this, what's the call to us in life? Now draw us back to the beginning when we talked about the heroes of the faith and trying to find heroes in this story. The hero is Jesus. The hero is God himself who comes to reconcile the people who are fallen and bring him to himself. The hero is Jesus who identifies with the lonely and the outcast and takes the form of being lowly and outcast. And by the way, that is probably the most significant part of Christ's suffering in all of it more than the nails of the cross or the shame of hanging on a tree is the isolation he felt not only from all of humanity but from God the Father and God the Holy Spirit as he hung and bore the sins, our sins on the cross. Don't make light of the isolation and the loneliness that you feel in life. Don't think that those things don't matter and shape you. Don't pretend that you can just tell yourself things you want to hear and that you can convince yourself that they're true. You need to hear these things from somebody else. And if no one around you is willing to tell you that or able to tell you that, you need to hear it from God. And even if, even if and especially if you have a lot of people around you telling you that, you need to find a way to drown out those voices and hear God's voice because that's the voice that's most meaningful of all. The toughest place to come to faith is a place of being loved and idolized. The toughest place to have an encounter of God, with God is a place of comfort and security. But the place where Jesus comes and meets us is when we're on the ground with no blanket and no pillow with our head on the rock and he shows us that he is the way to heaven that he is the way to God that the angels ascending and descending are preparing a way for us that ultimately Jesus is that way he's the only one who can bring us to God to bear our sorrows and our weakness to bear our shame and the things that keep us away from God. And in this, in this story of, of, of anti-heroes, of, of deception, of wrongdoing, of sin on top of sin, we didn't even mention marrying a woman's sister, which later in the law is condemned, but not at this point. 
we find God entering into this place and showing us how he redeems a broken people and lifts us out of a pit. I mean, I'd like to think that sermons preached to myself. If I would have preached this one to myself before today, maybe I wouldn't have felt so overwhelmed. I don't know. But do you feel like you're in a place that's just lonely and, and, and unfulfilled and, and, uh, and, and, and that your job is not going the way you wanted it to and that, that, uh, um, that whatever it is, whether you're, you're married happily or, or unmarried unhappily or unmarried happily or, or married unhappily, this story speaks to every single one of us of our need ultimately for God's love. And secondarily, how God takes all these things that we say, how in the world can God use this? This is so messed up. And some of the time, oftentimes we say, this is so messed up because I messed it up. And what God comes in and says, you may have messed it up, but I am not messing up. I'm bringing my purposes to, for, to fruition even if you can't see how it's happening. And he ultimately does that through the work of Jesus. Let's, let's stop there and, and let's pray. Father, What an absolute mess Laban's family and Jacob's marriage started off to be. What an absolute mess humanity made of your creation when Adam and Eve said to you, we have a better plan. What an absolute mess I can make of sermons oftentimes and your church can make of your witness of the gospel. What an absolute mess every one of us has found ourselves in, sometimes the fault of others and sometimes our own fault. Lord, would you help us to see in this story how you turn these things to work good for your, your people, your church, your kingdom, your family, to use these cast-off stones to build up a beautiful temple. That Jesus would become the one who was cast off by humanity to restore our hope and give us assurance of your promises. Lord, may we look at this story and see Jesus clearly in it and see how he changes our lives and changes everything he touches. May we be agents of that change. May we be uh, changed by that, that work of Jesus in our lives. May we see you May we hear you. May we know your affection because we know you see and hear and love us. 
May we praise you as a result. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.